following is a message at Living Savior Church in Asheville and Hendersonville, North Carolina. To learn more, go to lsavior.org. When's the last time you looked at the sun? Kind of a trick question, because if you were to tell me, well, actually, it was yesterday, then my response would be, you're not supposed to look at the sun. Didn't your mama ever tell you? No, really, if you're ever going to even look up into the sky on a clear day, unlike today, you have to squint. You have to use those natural, God-given filters of your eyelids and your eyelashes to kind of squint. If, you're, if the sun is over here even and you're looking at a bird or a plane or a cloud over there, even then when you lift your eyes, which can only operate with light, by the way, if there is an overabundance of light, you then have to filter that light because you don't want to burn your retina. That would be bad. This whole idea of filtering light is not just true when it comes to the natural light, but it also especially applies to the divine light, the glorious radiance of God's eternal glory. You heard of one of these Old Testament characters, these pillars from ages ago who appeared with Jesus on that mountain, that Mount of Transfiguration. His name is Moses. Great and mighty Moses wanted to see God face to face, and what did God tell him? Nobody can see God and live. And you kind of see that when angels who reflect the glory of God, when they ever appear before people, everybody thinks they're going to be toast. Like when Isaiah saw those flying seraphim, saraf literally means burning ones in Hebrew, six-winged seraphs flying around, what does Isaiah say? Oh no, I'm ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah 6, when those shepherds were living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night, how does it go? They see the angels and they say, look at the light show. No, this was not like 4th of July in the south where it's awesome to look heavenward. They thought they were toast because the angel then had to say, do not Be afraid, angels always have to say that whenever they appear to human beings because they reflect the glory of God and we do not and so when we come face to face with that, we think we are done. So Moses wants to see the glory of God but no one can and live so he hides him in a cleft in the rock and he allows Moses to see the afterglow as he passes by and if you ever read, and you should, Exodus 34, the Lord doesn't only give him this brilliant afterglow, this picture, but he also says something even more radiant in his words. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. But I will not leave the guilty and punish. I will punish the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who do not love me and do not obey my commandments. This is the compassionate and gracious God who judges for all eternity, but he leads with grace that he keeps his promise and his grace and mercy, his faithful love, this big word is carried out ultimately in the radiance of Jesus Christ who came from the Father full of grace and truth, John says in John chapter one. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten, he says, and he's talking not about a shining afterglow as Moses saw. Not about terrifying angels like Isaiah and those shepherds saw. 
He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is, as the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, the image of God, literally the full representation of the glory of God. So why does the Apostle Paul have to go out of his way to talk about it in terms of this veil? Well, consider again looking at the sun. Just as you cannot look at the sun without giving yourself some kind of filter, squinty eyes, sunglasses, and even then you shouldn't look at the sun, so too there is another kind of veil that's going on here. And he's not speaking of a veil in just a a natural sense to help you look at something. He's speaking of a sinful, broken, worldly-centered, satanic, evil kind of veil. Look back at what he says on page seven. He says, and if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. You see, the Apostle Paul has had to make this defense. And in the beginning of this chapter, he says that. He says, "We, we do not distort the word of God. Instead, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every person's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's having to defend himself because there were these other people that came along and were infiltrating the Christian ranks in the city of Corinth and the Christians in Corinth. They called themselves super apostles, which by the way, how little of an ego or big ego and how inferior do you have to feel if you have to add the title super? Like if you got an email from me this week and it said, sincerely, super pastor, Caleb Kerbis. <laughs> I would hope you would respond that way because if you didn't respond that way, I would think, I don't think we know each other. Um, I think this week I'm gonna start sending out some emails. <laughs> no, like you have to call yourself, oh, you, the Apostle Paul came along. Let's see, all right, how are we gonna, how are we gonna convince these people were the super apostles. Like, w- w- what's wrong with these people? And if that's not messed up enough, people that are really trying to compensate, if that's not messed up enough, what's really messed up is their message. It's not just an attack, like this is a personal attack. Oh, we have a personnel problem here. People try to do that when they don't want to get to the, the, the really heart of the matter. Well, it's just a personality conflict. Uh-huh, but now can we actually talk about the meat and gravy going on? That's the problem. Because what they're really doing is they're not just attacking the Apostle Paul, they're attacking the Apostle Paul's message, which, if you look back in 1 Corinthians, his first letter is Christ and him crucified. That is the gospel. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdoms, and the wisdom of man is foolery. That's his message, starting with verse, or chapter one, excuse me. And so if the message of Christ and him crucified is really the bedrock, not just of our faith, but of all eternity, therefore, then for them to go against that, that's the problem. Super apostles. So Paul, instead of saying, well, all right, let's have a showdown. Let's have a showdown. Your biblical chops against mine. We'll meet at high noon, 20 paces, and then we'll start firing back and forth. No, 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 no. Instead, what is he doing? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. We do not distort the word of God. Instead, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every person's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, here's the word, your heart and your mind still has to deal with that, with the questions you have and the inflicting guilt you know from your own conscience, you, everybody, all humanity, you still have to have answers for that. Here's the word of God. It's not about me. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. It's not about them who call themselves super. It's about the word of God. And sadly, guess what? It's veiled. It's veiled. And why and how is it veiled according to his words? It's veiled to unbelievers. How does that happen? 
Well, if the gospel of Jesus is, let's cover what that is, what it is, and if people cannot see that, it's because either someone is veiling it or they are veiling it themselves, they're squinting at it and looking elsewhere, or somebody is shielding their sight. So, so what is the gospel then? The gospel is this, do you know? That God who is rich in mercy has this predisposed grace and favor towards us, not out of vengeance, not to get us to obey. He's got angels who obey him perfectly. He doesn't need that like he's insecure. He just loves us. God is love, 1 John tells us. And then with that love, he loves you. And he loves you specifically, not just with a big grandpa hug kind of love. Oh, I'm sure there's that. But he loves you in this way that he sent his one and only son to live in your place and to take away all your sins so that there's never a pretense as you approach God. There's never a fear as you think about eternity. There's never a worry as you ponder death. And so you would see a God who's not out to get you, but a God who gives everything for you in Christ no catch. There's not about to then be, well, so then all you gotta do is, and this is how you gotta prove it, and if you really want it, then here's here, 10 steps to real happiness. No, 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 no. No catch. Zero conditions. And if I have learned anything over 12 plus years of being a pastor here, I have learned to unafraidedly say it because the world isn't saying it, and even a whole host of Christians aren't saying that either. And I know many of you know that. The gospel is free. It's Jesus for you. There's no cash, catch. There's no payment. His currency is grace. The payment was blood. His death and resurrection prove it, and it's for you. That's the gospel. So then if that's the gospel, who in all the world would want to squint at that? Who would want that to be veiled? Because that's, that's the greatest news ever, right? I mean, on a practical level, think of what that means. It means that if I know the gospel and, and someone else knows the gospel, one of you knows the gospel, then, then think of what that does. We both are forgiven, so who's better? Jesus is, how cool is that? If you and I both know the gospel, then we also know that the greatest desires and worries and fears of our hearts and our lives are taken care of. So then, where's the need for anything else between us on a personal level, just practically speaking? And, and that is a microcosm of what the gospel gives us. It gives us literally not just a glimpse like Peter, James, and John had on the Mount of Transfiguration, a glimpse of God's glory. It gives us glory that will never fade. So then, why would anyone want that veiled? Well, the devil has never stopped lying and he's never stopped working. And you know how he works? He doesn't bust out of your closet and say, boo, I'm the devil. I'm gonna hide your face from Jesus today. Your heart is next. He doesn't do that. He doesn't just do bold-faced evil. He, do, he does sinister and deceptive lies. He's been lying from the beginning, Jesus said. And how does he do that? Well, first of all, he gets you to think about other things 
as though those other things are more important than the gospel. He gets you to think that the, the time and the effort that you have to put in here, there, and everywhere, and the status that you're trying to achieve, and the bankroll you're trying to realize, and the positions you're trying to accomplish in life, that those things really, really, yep, you gotta do that. You, you, you gotta get to those things. And all the while, little by little, is it not a wise move of the devil, if you're playing the devil's games, to try and give you that type of spiritual yet evil Gatorade so that you pursue those things, all the while he knows that the more and more you pursue those things, you find your status in those things and you find your status less in the place where it really counts. Tell me that is not working really well for 2024 America, just as it has for the last however many generations. Tell me. If you do tell me, I will say, get your head out of the sand. Or how about this? How else does the gospel get veiled from people? How about you yourself and I myself have this thing inside of us and it's baked in that we do have to do something. Like what is the catch? The fact that I have to say there's no conditions and there's no catch is not because I thought of that on my own, it's because all of humanity tends to think that there is some kind of catch. And so through those who call themselves Christian and yet distort the message and those who don't, there is always, always, always some kind of nuance that you do gotta do something. You do have to do something. And if you don't do that something, then how can you really have God's love and grace? And more and more people are led to focus on self and the more they focus on self, the less they focus on Jesus. I've seen it time and again. Odds are you have too. How about this? We become so preoccupied not just by our own achievements, our own power, our own willpower before God, but the powers and authorities that surround us in this world. And we think we got the cat by the tail as we look at politics and what's going wrong and the powers and the princes of this world and the rulers, and if only they would do it the way that I think they know how to do it. And we, we also, by the way, we're always able to perfectly evaluate all news and know what's right and wrong all the time, right? Remember. And then on top of that, we get so stirred up as though if the right people are in the right seats, then everything is gonna be great. But let's just play that out and see that happens. A, we gotta figure it out ourselves. B, we can call the place. We put the quarterback in the right spot and then the wide receiver over here. We got a Super Bowl team in politics and in the house and we got it covered, right? Let's say that that even works, which is a fairy tale, but let's say it works. Is it really gonna work come two years from now? Like, do we really have that all figured out even if we do think so if everything that we think is a, is a conspiracy or true or a lie or evil is actually that, do we actually possess the power to even fix it? Let's say we even do, then what does that all say except that we're not strangers here, but this is our home and heaven's not. But that's not what we sing. How does the song go? I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. And Jesus did not come into this world to make a kingdom here. What did he say in those waning hours before Pontius Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. And so of all of the veils that are trying to, that, that are in front of us, that are not just trying to be put over our own eyes and our own hearts, that is certainly true of the unbelievers that he's speaking of. Notice what he does say. He goes on from there. 
The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we, we preach is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And so the answer to all of these veils is to rip them off. It's to tear them away. It is to identify them for what they are and you know your weaknesses and I know mine. So I'm not about to foist mine on you but what I can say is it doesn't matter who you are. There's never a graduate cap where you move the tassel and say, I got this whole Christian thing whipped. Instead, the glory of the, the, the image of God, the full representation of God is found in, and this is so simple, it's found in Jesus. So who do you need for your greatest status in life? You need Jesus. Who do you need for your guilt? You need Jesus. Who do you need for your life? Who do you need in the face of evil, no matter where it exists, whether it's in your life, your home, your job, your community, our country? We need Jesus. The full image of God, the representation of everything that he stands for, of love and grace and eternity, it's found in Jesus. And those disciples were allowed just a glimpse of it. They couldn't even hardly see it. Even Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all try to kind of depict it in different ways. His, his face looked like lightning. His claws were whiter than anyone could bleach them. I mean, what can you say when you're trying to describe the indescribable? And yet that is but a glimpse of what God has given you. And all of that, that ultimate result of heavenly glory is given you, is given to you through whom? Jesus, and what do you see in Jesus? That God became man, and there was nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him, Isaiah 53. And he would lower himself below the angels, Hebrews 1, so that he would be approachable to us, so that he would put his fingers in the ears of the deaf, and he would touch the tongue and he would say to a little girl, Talathakum, which means get up. A paralyzed man would be dropped down before him. He would forgive his sins and then tell him to get up and walk away. And that man walked not just with strength of legs, but with strength of a forgiven faith. And this is the God who now approaches you. You need Jesus. What we teach our children, what we give to little Frida, what we tell ourselves is really what we need. It's the word of God's grace in Jesus. This is not just something that, yeah, Pastor Paul says, the apostle, and Pastor Paul Zell says, and Pastor Caleb says, and Vicar says. This is our life. And since it's our life, then whether we're in those mountaintop moments or we're following Jesus through a hard valley, look at where that leads, the final verse. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So that means even if you're fast facing the darkest day, even if it is not a glorious moment where everyone is smiling, when it comes those days where you actually have to discipline Frida for the first time and you feel bad as a parent, just call me, I'll help you get over it. But when it is really those hard moments, when it's not just the discipline of a child, but we're wrestling with the face of our own resemblance, who comes from us, who proves that they are sinful just like us, and then we wrestle with our own mortality, like this Wednesday when we hear, from dust you are and to dust you will return. And then we have to turn to the only place where we find rescue from that, and that is the cross and empty tomb of Jesus. Jesus. 
The answer then today is Jesus. And the answer tomorrow is, guess what? Jesus. And then the next day and the next year and however long God allows us to live, it is Jesus. Some of you know this last week I was presenting at a conference with pastors and teachers down in Texas and one of the presentations I gave was, where is God and why? The theology of the cross in the face of suffering. And it's a very humbling thing to look out and to see people and to know that so many of them have faced way more sufferings than me. So why do I have a microphone? But you know what I got to do? I got to tell stories. Some of you, one story I got to tell was of Emma Winter. Remember Emma Winter? She died in 2017 and now she sees the full radiance of Christ's glory unveiled in heaven. Emma Winter was nonverbal, in hospice care, Hendersonville Health and Rehabilitation. Richard was just leaving, saying what he thought might very well be a farewell to his wife, and it was. So as I gave Richard a hug, I said some things to Richard, and of course, if you know Richard, he didn't hear a thing. A gunner in the Navy, they didn't use ear protection like they do now. I went in and I sat next to Emma, and just did simple things. Anything, something that any of you would do. I read Psalm 23, King James Version, her favorite. And what did she start to do? She started to mouth it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down. And, and she started to mouth it. Nonverbal, the nurse says. Oh yeah, but God. And then I knew her favorite hymn. I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. And she starts to sing it. I kid you not. And as she starts to sing it, in comes a nurse. And she whispers down the hall and in comes another nurse. And right there in that moment, I'm not able to sing the verses anymore because I'm a crying baby at this point. And I don't do well in talking and speaking through tears. Some of you know this. We finished the stanza. I didn't dare even try to start the second one. In that moment, on the bed of death and in the face of what is ugly, someone who's about to breathe their last, and that night she did, it looks so bad and it looks so ugly and to an unbelieving world it is. And yet what do you and I see? Rip the veil away. You see the glory of Christ who through the beauty of his gospel has preserved and kept a daughter of his until he called her home. So from one mountain down to the valley to the next, which is emblematic of all of life, is that not what God is doing with all of us? And so what looks hideous and ugly is beautiful and wonderful, not just in the sight of God, but in the sight of us who now know what it means to have the glory of Jesus. And my friends, that you do. Amen.